Well, thank you, George, and it is good to see you all this morning. And uh, today we come to a passage in the Gospel of Mark that is a hard but a beautiful topic. And you just heard the Scripture reading about Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. So the setting is that the, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. Did you hear that? They're not there to learn. Other people were there listening and learning and soaking it in. They were there as critics on the sideline. And they're wanting to know, what does Jesus think about marriage and divorce? So let me just pause for a moment and say, why is this story placed here in the gospel? I mean, for the last few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been hearing Jesus' teachings, uh, learning about his miracles. In fact, uh, uh, just the last few weeks, we've, we've heard Jesus say that if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And if you want to find it, uh, you will actually lose it if you're looking for yourself. Well, that's... I think we can all hear that and understand, yeah, that's the message of the gospel. Or even last week when we heard about pride and prejudice, ways that damage our souls and our relationship to God. But um, why divorce and why now in the gospel of Mark? So, uh, in a way, could I say this passage becomes a test for us, kind of like the Pharisees tested Jesus. Maybe this passage is, his text is testing you because maybe you're wondering, well, this was the wrong Sunday to come. I'm single, I'm divorced or widowed, or maybe you think your marriage is great and you can just, you know, check your email now or tune out or whatever it might be. But can I remind you that if you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, you need to be here. You need to know what he teaches about this subject. You need to. Because all Christians need to know everything that God has told all of us. That's why... Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Not some for some people. Obviously, some parts will apply to you more than others at different times in your life, but all of it is for all believers. And who knows, maybe God will bring someone into your life who needs to hear this, and maybe you'll be the only person who can tell them. So to get more specific about this topic, I, you know, searched statistics, and I never like statistics because statistics can lie and liars can do statistics, and you never know what the metrics are and all that. So anyway, I found things all over the place. I tried to find how many divorces are in America per marriage per year, and then narrow it down to the Christian church. And I found answers that are huge and answers that are few. So I thought, well, all right, that's not very helpful. 
maybe there's a personal poll I could take here and just ask you, not to put your hand up, but to answer this question. Um, do you know of someone who has been touched by divorce? And I'm sure that all of us are thinking not just of one person, but of two or three or twelve in some way touched by it. So I think that proves the point I'd like to make to start is that our experience is the way it was in Bible times, both in the Old Testament, in the Jewish world, in which the Gospel of Mark is written, and in the Greco-Roman world, the, the whole world of the New Testament, in which the apostles will write and talk about it. So it's a perennial issue, divorce. And since divorce isn't new then, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus would want to explain, if you're going to follow me, what is God's view on this? So that's where we are today. Now, I've got 30 minutes to discuss a topic that could take us 30 days to preach on. Are you all with me on this? So give me a little slack here. Uh, this subject is far more complex than what I can say today. So I invite you to uh, email us, talk to us about questions, maybe personal situations. This is the beginning of a conversation. This is not everything about it. So let's start. What I'd like to do is, first of all, show you what Mark says about Jesus' teaching. Then I want to broaden it and say, what does the whole Bible teach about divorce? And then I want to kind of give a so what. What does it mean for us to live as Christians this way? So first, the passage that uh, you heard read by George a few minutes ago is not all that hard to understand. You've got these Jewish leaders who are wanting to test Jesus, and they come to him, and they give this leading question, right? Verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in one sense, it, it's a legitimate question. But what's underneath it is what Jesus is looking at. You realize when anybody asks you a question, they've got the surface question up here, but what's driving the question underneath? And if you're wise, you will try to hear both, even though this is not spoken. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he, he asked them a question. How about that? <laughs> you ever answer a question with a question? So he comes back with, well, verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they go into this description of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where it starts this way, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then it describes, once you do this to the wife, you're not permitted to take her back again if she remarries and gets divorced, or if you marry a second time and get divorced. Sounds a little complicated, right? 
And that's what they're doing. They're going to a piece of legislation in the Old Testament that was debated among the rabbis. Even the rabbis during Jesus' day had differing views on this. So there was one leading rabbi named Shammai who had a very strict view of this. And we know this from the writings that we have outside the Bible preserved for us by Jewish sources. And he taught only adultery is that indecent thing. That is, there's only one reason that you can divorce your spouse. On the other other hand, there was another famous rabbi named Hillel who said, no, it doesn't say adultery there in Deuteronomy. It says an indecent thing, which he opened up and other rabbis who followed him and said, if the meal she cooks doesn't taste good, seriously, or if she doesn't look pleasing to you, you can, you know, give her this divorce certificate and send her away. So, Jesus, where are you on this? You're a rabbi. Uh, Do you come down on this side, the stricter side, or this side, the, the looser liberal view? And Jesus weighs in in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So he doesn't come down on either side. He goes to that thing that's driving their testing question. And he says, oh, you want to talk about that exception in Deuteronomy 24? Well, look, hold it. Before we talk about that, Let's talk about why he even had to say that. It was because the hearts of people are hard that they want to get out of marriages. And what Jesus is saying is essentially, you're asking the wrong question. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, and now he's going to go back to Genesis 1 27 and 2.24 and actually quote the Bible back to them. They no doubt had it memorized, but he says, verse 6, God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. So that's the starting point. Well, they're probably saying, well, of course he did. But again, Jesus is not just quoting the Bible to quote the Bible and talk about marriage. He says, that's where we have to start. You're wanting to look at some little exception. Let's go back to the ideal. Marriage, he says, is to be male and female. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, 24, where he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, he says, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Words that you may have heard at a wedding. So what's he doing? He's saying, guys, you're asking me a question. I'm asking you a question You're giving me an answer. I'm giving you the right question and the right answer. And the right question is not, what's the loophole for divorce? But 
What is marriage ideally? So let's go back to Genesis. It is heterosexual, male and female. It is monogamous, two, and it is lifelong, permanent. That's why a few years ago we added to our church covenant, if you're a member you agreed to this, that we follow God's design for human beings by affirming his creation of two genders as male and female in his image, recognizing that marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for their lifetime and that sexual activity is reserved for this relationship. That's where Jesus stood. That's where the church of Jesus for 2,000 years has stood. That's where we stand. So the first thing you want to talk about before you talk about divorce is, what is marriage? Not, oh, can we find some kind of loophole here, or we've got a situation in our marriage. Okay, let's erase the board and start from scratch and say, what a beautiful thing God has made. It's in the covenant of marriage that we can be fully known, fully loved. This is both the beauty of marriage as well as the mystery of marriage. As George prayed, you heard, we get to experience on a human level what we experience all of us who know Jesus on a divine, spiritual level. That's what marriage is. That's why marriage is not just two people, you know, coming together, becoming one. It is, but it includes the fact that marriage images, it projects to others something they can see, something about God. Every marriage has that potential to reflect the glory of God, like the heavens declare the glory of God, and the flowers do, and the snowflakes. Marriage is this giant light that shines out and says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the rest of the passage, Jesus goes with his disciples into a house and basically drills down on this uh, and says, yeah, marriage is permanent. So now, what do we do with this passage? Because the question is still on the table, the D word, right? Divorce. Uh, Jesus <laughs> reframes the question and gives a different answer, but we're still left hanging, aren't we, with, okay, what about divorce? So, what we shouldn't do is say, well, you know, it's Mark 10, 1 through 12. This is all that Jesus thinks about divorce. I mean, we don't do that with other Bible passages, right? I mean, if, um, let's say, you want to learn about prayer, and there's a verse that says, if you ask anything in Jesus' name, he will give it to you. So you say, okay, then I'm going to pray. And on Tuesday, you didn't get it. So you say, oh, prayer doesn't work. That verse is false. 
right? Well, hopefully you would say, well, there's more than one verse about prayer in the Bible. There's another verse over here that says you should ask God if it's your will. So what do you do? You put this one with this one, and of course there's many others, and you form a theology of prayer. Here's everything that the Bible says about prayer. So my question is, what does the rest of the Bible say about divorce? And does it say more? And my answer is, yes, it does. In fact, Jesus said more about it. It's not recorded by Mark, it's recorded by Matthew. So if you go back to Matthew, and I'll give you these references if you want to look them up later, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, here's Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 24 there. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, comma, except for sexual immorality, comma, makes her the victim of adultery. Oh, except, yeah. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, he says the same thing, except for sexual immorality. So what is he teaching us? If you put Matthew with Mark, you see Jesus is teaching for sure the permanence of marriage, but also there's one reason that breaks the marriage covenant, and that is sexual unfaithfulness within that marital covenant. That's a way of saying it's not two become one, it's one of those two looks for another one. That's breaking marriage. And what Jesus is saying here is he didn't invent that. He didn't come up with that like, oh, this is brand new. Because in the Old Testament, there's another example of divorce because of sexual unfaithfulness. And you know who divorces? This is going to surprise some of you. God. Listen to Isaiah 50, verse 1. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? He's talking to the people of Israel. If you know the Old Testament history, you know that God sent prophets to warn the, his people, if you don't repent and follow me, I'm going to put you in exile. I'm going to take you out of my land so you can learn to follow me as you suffer. And God said, that exile is like a divorce. And Jeremiah 3, verse 8, God says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. That's why Jesus said, accept for sexual immorality, because the prophets of Israel, reflecting the word of Yahweh, said Israel's spiritual immorality was the ground for God's divorce of the northern kingdom Israel, the ten tribes in the north. You want another one? 
We all know the Christmas story, right? Matthew 1, the virgin birth story. Remember Joseph and Mary? Well, of course. We know that almost by heart, right? Do you remember that Joseph's reaction to Mary's pregnancy was not only one of surprise, right? How could she be pregnant? It must be somebody else. This is what it says he was contemplating. This is Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Did you catch that? Because he was a righteous man, he looked for divorce. Not in spite of that. And then, of course, the angel came and said, whoa, 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 hold it. Stop. (laughs) You got this wrong. Let me give you the inside information here. And he didn't follow through with his plans. Let me tell you one more. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul adds another exception when he discusses marriage between a believer and a non-believer. We would call that, what, a mixed marriage, right? Maybe one person comes to faith and then somebody else hopefully will come to faith later, but what do you do in that in-between time? And some of you have been in this situation, right? So Paul says, first of all, if you're in that situation, don't divorce. Christian, don't divorce. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, stay married. But then he says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So here's a second reason. First, sexual immorality. Secondly, abandonment. When someone leaves, deserts the marriage, Why? Because that breaks the covenant. Marriage is initially made by a promise, a covenant. Well, if you break that covenant, you're not married. And these examples show us that clearly there are at least two legitimate reasons for divorce. Now, hear me, it's never good to divorce, but sometimes it's necessary. And I'm going to also suggest that there's a third. Our pastors think that there is another reason on top of those other two, and I'm talking about abusive behavior. These are actions that willingly and persistently end up breaking the marriage covenant, just like the first two. Persistent, unrepentant, abusive behavior is a legitimate reason to consider, hear me, to consider divorce, not automatic, to think about it. Like sexual immorality and desertion, abusive behavior breaks that one flesh ideal that was set in Eden for marriage. So, 
is a big topic, right? So all I can say right now is please come and talk to us if you have questions about this. And uh, we're actually hosting a seminar you may be interested here uh, to, to come to. We're hosting it here on May 3rd. It's going to be called, that's a Wednesday. No, is it Wednesday? Wednesday. It's called Protect the Flock, Identifying Domestic Abuse, and more details will be coming on that. All right, now, up to this point, I felt like I've been in the classroom, right? This is a lot of information I'm giving you. What have I said? Basically, here was the question to Jesus about divorce, and he reframes it by talking about marriage, the ideal marriage. But then if we listen to Jesus in Matthew, we hear, oh, yeah, he does talk about divorce because God talked about divorce in the Old Testament, and so did Paul. Okay, so what? <laughs> and so I have four words that I would like to use as little hammers. Here's four ways, especially about divorce and marriage. And I'm just going to use the words ideal, real, better, best. Ideal. We must keep our eyes on the ideal. What's that mean? I'm saying pursue a lifelong marriage to one person. That's what Jesus said should be our first priority, right, when thinking about marriage. It's not what is permitted, but it's what is commanded. He said, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, Moses allowed us to do this. And Jesus said, yeah, but the command in Scripture is to leave and be with your wife forever. That's what we should be talking about. That's what Jesus' first priority is. It would be like saying to somebody, hey, I want to learn how to drive a car. And you say, okay, first thing I want to tell you is if you're ever in an accident, here's what you do. Excuse me? <laughs> Why are you going there first? If you think, if this is top in your mind, that divorce is an easy option, if things don't work out, you know, the relief valve is divorce. If you think that, you're already planting the seeds of a marital breakdown. Don't go there. Keep the bar set high, the ideal. Number two, the real. We must be aware of the real. There are a few legitimate reasons for divorce, but they should never be the first step or the second step, or the third. Always pursue help. And I'll say it again, we're here to listen, to talk, to pray, to advise. We don't have a magic wand if you come for one visit to Pastor Shep or Pastor Jin or me. We're not going to wave this and say, oh, you're going to walk out in bliss. 
pleased. That's, you wouldn't think that, right? But hopefully you would say, you know what, we can't keep this to ourselves. Let's at least go in confidence, we'll be accepted, not rejected. Let's at least get one person involved. Let's talk. We want to be a safe place. And you know, it's not just the pastors. Maybe a good, close friend. Maybe someone in your community group. Maybe someone outside of the church. But don't feel like you're alone and then you've got to go to the attorney. The best? The real. The ideal? The real. Sorry. Third, the better. We must work toward a better marriage. Nobody's got an ideal marriage. Nobody does. But everyone who's married can have a better marriage. And where do you find out how to have a better marriage? Well, again, the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 5, talks about that. And a few years ago, when we went through the book of Ephesians here on Sunday mornings, I happened to have that passage in chapter 5. And somebody told me this week, he actually has that bookmarked, and he's recommended it to some people he knows. Uh, you know, hey, you know, listen to this sermon again. So I thought, oh, really? Wow. So I looked up my notes. <laughs> I didn't forget everything I said, but um, what did I say back then? Well, just very quickly, Paul says, husbands, here's the way you're supposed to treat your wife, and wives, here's, here's how you're supposed to live with your husbands. And basically, basically, it goes like this. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Care for her so selflessly that you meet her every need. Wow, talk about an ideal that you can never meet as a man. That's the bar that God sets for men. Never the word rule, never the word I'll have it my way, my rights, it's her first, just like Jesus died for his people. And wives are called to lovingly submit and follow the leadership of a man like that. That's what wives are called to, so that when each one is doing that, they look like one. Not one behind the other, but one with the other. And you know, we've been looking at Mark and discipleship. We just heard a few weeks ago what Jesus said in Mark 8:34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Well, <laughs> you know what? If you're married, your discipleship starts there, at home, take up your cross. Deny yourself. And I could say, uh, after checking with my wife on this, after almost 45 years of a really good marriage, not always really good, my wife and I have found that a simple thing as talking goes so far, so 
Yeah, I better be careful how much I say here, right? But let's just say being honest, vulnerable, talking about, about myself, humble, using the words I'm sorry or rephrasing what I'm hearing. You know, you think after 40, year, after 40 years, you learn. And yet, I'm, I'm just, I'm not there. And being able to just stop and say, we're not going to get up until we at least have moved and pray together and say I'm sorry a lot. Anyway, that's something I am learning. Talk. And then I got to thinking, can you imagine, I'm trying to imagine, what would our church be like next year if the couples who are struggling, like really struggling in their marriages, found the space to talk to each other and to bring someone into that conversation if needed, and to have the grace to forgive each other and change, and to bring that friend along to say, you know what, please, Help walk with us in this. That's okay. Because if, if everybody's honest who's married here, your marriage needs help. Now, some need a lot of help, and some need not as much help. And that means that those of us who have those life lessons need to come alongside those who need to learn them. Okay, the ideal, the real, the better, and then finally, with this I close, the best. We must always remember the best, the best thing about marriage. And you know what? The best thing about marriage is not marriage itself. The best thing is what marriage signifies the most intimate, loving relationship between you and God. So when Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians 5, you know, just pointed you to that passage, husbands, wives, you know how he ends? He says, you know, there's something more going on here. There's a mystery here between human marriage and the divine marriage of Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.32. That's why God begins the Bible, the story of redemption, with a human marriage, right? Adam and Eve. And he ends the story of redemption with a divine marriage, the bride and the lamb. See that? That's not a coincidence. That's because that's what life is all about loving relationships. Human marriage, then, is this picture of every believer's marriage relationship as the bride of Christ. So, my final word. What should we learn from the passage today? Well, couples, husbands, and wives, keep your eye on the ideal and work for a better marriage. And for everyone,
keep your eye on the best, the best marriage. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you until we see him face to face forever. And so, I want to thank you, Lord, for the gift of human marriage, but even more, I thank you that you knew me and chose me before I was even born. You had the wedding planned. (laughs) Thank you for your undying love. Thank you that we can reflect it in these metaphors called marriages. May our church shine with broken marriages that are getting better, with single people that know this and radiate your joy in their contentment, and how we look forward to seeing you face-to-face someday when marriage will be no more, but when our relationship with you, our heavenly groom, will be everything. So even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.